0: much time is allotted for me to speak at this point. And as he has done throughout the meeting, he refused to give me a deadline, give me a time allotment. And I feel even worse about that when I understand that he is very, let's say, economical in his preaching. And so I understand he's not very long-winded, and I have the opposite problem. I remember many years ago, there was a friend of mine who had understood the truth about uh, institutionalism and what the church is and is not authorized to do. And he asked me to come help with the congregation there because they were struggling with that issue. And so I thought this may be my only opportunity to present the truth of God's Word on the uh, structure of the church and its authorized work. And so I threw everything I knew at it, kitchen sink, as they say, you know, the the carrot and the stick, and I looked up at the clock, and they had a clock like y'all do, and And made a misjudgment. Uh, I thought the clock said uh, 12.30, it said 1.30, and I'd started preaching at 11.30. So I'd been preaching for two hours straight. Uh, It was uh, so bad, one of the ladies who was diabetic just had to leave. She hung in there as long as she could. She had to get something to eat. And then one of the brothers at the end, in the foyer, he said, Now, Brother Clark, we're going to thank you for those sermons, all three of them. (laughs) Needless to say, it was a long while before I was invited back to that congregation. But we won't do two hours uh, this morning. We'll try to keep it reasonable. I want you to direct your attention to Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 75. That was the assigned Bible reading. I want to read it again for emphasis. It is, to me, one of the most powerful, poignant, and in some ways emotionally gut-wrenching moments in Scripture. Matthew 26, 69 through 75. Matthew 26, 69 through 75. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it for them all, saying, I do not know what you're saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with with oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crows. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. And I say this is one of the most poignant moments in Scripture, because you remember Peter, well-intentioned, had said earlier that even if all the other apostles were to forsake the Lord, he would not. He would stay solid. He was firmly behind. And there's no reason to suggest that Peter was insincere when he professed that. And yet, despite all that, we have this occasion. We're on three different occasions in the courtyard. He is suggested to be a disciple of Jesus. And not only does he deny that he's a disciple, he goes even further to say, I don't even know the man. And on that third time, and Luke's account says that after the third time, the Lord turned and looked at. And I've always thought that must have been a terrible thing. You know what you've just done. You know that you denied the Lord. You know what you said to Him. And then to have Jesus just turn and look at you and know that He knows what you just did. In fact, He predicted it. I cannot imagine. And you can understand where the Scripture says He went out and He wept bitterly. And, of course, there's a silver lining to that. We know that Peter recovered from this. And the Lord had prayed as such. In fact, He suggested that He would come back to the faith. But it is a powerful moment. But I want to focus on one phrase that was suggested by one of the servant girls in verse 73. She said, Surely you are also one of them, one of Jesus' disciples, for your speech betrays you. What does she mean by that? What was it about Peter's speech? What was it about the way that he talked? What was it about the way that he enunciated his declaration, I do not know the man, that suggested that that was evidence to her and those around that he indeed was one of the disciples of Jesus. If we're wondering what is meant by that, I think more light is shed on that by Mark chapter 14 and verse 70. Mark the 14th chapter and verse 70. Let's turn there. Mark chapter 14 and verse 70. Mark chapter 14 and verse 70. But he denied it again, referring to Peter, but he denied it again, and a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, listen to this, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows And so that's the point of what is being said is, remember, they're in Jerusalem, and it was known that Jesus' ministry was primarily in the region of Galilee. And so their saying is there was something about the way that Peter spoke, something about his accent, something about the way he enunciated words that suggested that you also are from Galilee, just like he was. That's where he did his work. Therefore, you're one of his disciples. Then we can understand that. We know that in different regions of the country we have different ways of speaking and different accents and different phrases. A lot of my friends that come from the north always get irritated by the southernism of fixing to. What does that mean? I'm fixing to do this and I'm fixing to do that. Why do you say that? I don't know. We just grew up with that. And so there are things like that. In fact, I tell people, we were talking about this last night, I don't speak the King's English. I speak East Tennessee. That's where I'm raised, And that's what I know. And so every region has a certain dialect or accent, ways of saying things that identify us as being from that area. And so that's what she's saying when she says your speech betrays you. But I'm not so concerned about that historical incident this morning. I want to borrow that concept, the idea of one's speech betraying you, and apply it to us. And ask this question, how does your speech betray you? What do people know about you? What do people know about your faith? What do people know about your walk for God? What do people know about your commitment to biblical morality? By the way you talk, what you talk about, what you say, the jokes you make, the offhand comments you make. What do people know about you based on our speech? Because we understand this concept that our speech betrays us. That people are making judgments about us based on the way we speak. And so I want us to come away from this lesson perhaps being a little more careful, a little more guarded, a little more intentional about the way we speak. And we'll understand how we do that is to change this, the heart. Because the speech is just indicative of the heart. If the heart is wicked, the speech will be wicked. If the heart is godly, then the speech will be godly. And so the question this morning, the sermon title, How does your speech betray you? First point, what does your speech betray about your moral purity? What does your speech betray about your moral purity? We understand that as Christians, we have an obligation, a divinely ordained obligation to speak purely. The Christian is not to use profanity. The Christian is not to tell dirty jokes. The Christian is not to tell off-color jokes. The Christian is very careful in when he invokes the name of deity. He does so only in the appropriate way, not as some kind of uh, euphemism or some kind of slang. The Christian has to be really careful about how he or she speaks. That is a biblical principle found in many places in the Scriptures. I look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Ephesians, the fourth chapter in the 29th verse. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. The Bible says very simply, let no corrupt word Proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And so the Christian is told, don't let anything corrupt proceed out of your mouth. That's interesting because it suggests that we have the capability of doing that, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense to tell us to do something if we are incapable of doing it. So the Lord, who knows us better than we know ourselves, says... Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. And that applies everywhere. It applies when we gather here to worship the Lord. It applies in the workplace. It applies uh, in school. It applies on the sports field. It applies with basketball and football. It applies in when we're uh, going fishing. It applies when we're having disagreements, sometimes heated disagreements with members of our family, our friends. It applies when we get injured and we're hurt. And we react to that injury suddenly. Wherever we go, the Lord says, let no corrupt communication proceed from your mouth. And then He goes to the flip side and says, you know what you ought to do is speak in such a way that you impart grace to the hearers. So it's not enough to shun from saying things that are corrupt. You need to say things that are uplifting. You need to say things that are edifying. You need to say things that are going to lead people to God. And so it suggests that we have the ability to control what comes out of our mouth. And that's the Christian walk. We need to be careful that we talk in such a way that people will say, there's something different about him. There's something different about her. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had that? You've been with a bunch of friends and some conversations come up and somebody says something profane or utters an expletive and immediately they say, oh, I'm sorry. And it's directed towards you. Why did they say that? Because they've noticed something about your speech. You may not have ever given some lecture saying, this is why I don't use this kind of language. But they've noticed the absence of that profanity. And it's pretty telling, especially in this society, because profanity is so rampant. It's everywhere. People use it all over the place. I'm, you know, there are many, many different levels in which you can object to profanity. The most obvious one is that from a spiritual standpoint. But I also, in my line of work, just believe that fundamentally it's unprofessional. And yet I'm amazed at how many times lawyers and judges will use profanity it is just everywhere. And so in a situation in an environment where it is so well used and so often used, when someone consistently and routinely doesn't, it stands out. And people know without you ever giving them a, a discourse on why you do that, that you don't use that language and they feel ashamed when they use that. And hopefully that's happened to you. And if it doesn't happen to you, it makes me wonder, have you told the biblical why? Do they even know that there's something different about your speech? Do they know that you're a Christian? I often ask this question. If we were to put you on trial for being a Christian, could we come up with enough evidence to convict you? If we put your friends and your co-workers and your family members on the stand, would they be surprised that you made the claim to be a Christian? I've heard that of some people. That the way they talk, he just talks like the rest of us. And when we're talking about dirty jokes, he's in there laughing and contributing just like everyone else. For the Christian, let it not be so. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. The Bible says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man whose idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let it not even be named. Filthy talking, coarse jesting. That's not fitting. That's not appropriate. That's not proper for saints. And again, in this society where that is so rampant, it's going to make us different. I was talking to my 10-year-old son recently, and we were talking about this standard of not using uh, profanity, and he was telling me about a uh, young person in his class who had seen a certain movie that had profanity. And, and the, the, this friend of my son had said, you know, it's real funny how they use profanity. And I told Blake, there's nothing funny at all about that. That's the way maybe the media want to portray it. That's the way Hollywood wants you to take it. There's nothing funny because God said that's inappropriate. That's the reason. It's not the Clark family doesn't talk that way. It's not that it's unprofessional, which is all true. But that's not the main reason. The main reason is God says that's not appropriate. And if God, the creator of the universe, says that's not appropriate, that's the end of the matter. It is extremely frustrating to me how much profanity just litters everything around me. Movies and books, and, and, it, and, and not that it's ever necessary, but it just seems so gratuitous, in your face, almost like they're trying to make a point to people of faith to dare us to do something about it. It's not proper for us to talk that way. But here's the point. We know that that's the standard. We know that we can't talk that way. And yet, you probably know some Christians who have failed in this area. Maybe you yourself have failed in this area. How do we clean our act up? How do we prevent that stuff from getting rooted in our heart? Or if we've already done that, how do we cleanse our way of that? And I want to suggest to you that Matthew 15:10 through 20 gives us an answer to that. Matthew chapter 15, 10 through 20. Matthew chapter 15, 10 through 20. How does your speech or what does your speech portray about the purity of your heart? Matthew chapter 15, 10 through 20. Matthew the chapter, verses 10 through 20. Remember this occasion that the Lord's disciples were being accused of, of not washing their hands before they ate. And that was brought, that accusation, to Jesus. And uh, Jesus does not go into a defense of them, but actually turns on them and says, And well, wait a minute, why are you transgressing the commands of God by your own traditions? And he points out, just by way of illustration, that you're told to honor your father and mother. And what you've said, you've come up with a new doctrine that says uh, if a man has a father and mother that are in financial need, and the honoring obviously includes financial support, instead of requiring them to do what God said to do, you say, well, whatever I would have given to you, I've given to God. (laughs) And that exempts me. So I'd love to help you, Mom and Dad. I know you have a tough time, but I've given it to God, and God's more important. And Jesus says that you have completely ignored the commands of God by your own tradition. The fact of the matter is you can do both. You can give God what he is owed, but you can also take care of your parents because God gave both commands, and God doesn't give commands that are contradictory. And so he turns it on them. And later on, they begin, Jesus and the disciples, to have a discussion because the Jesus' disciples are a little bit concerned about how Jesus spoke to these people. <laughs> and you'll see that come out. Let's read the beginning of verse 10. When he called the multitude to himself, he said to them, and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. If the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And so Jesus explains, look, I'm not concerned about the washing of hands. You know that if anything goes into the mouth, it goes into the stomach and it's eliminated. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm concerned about. What I'm concerned about, about is what comes out of the mouth and the reason why i'm concerned about what comes out of the mouth is i know where it originates it originates in the heart it originates in the, in the mind and he said from the mind flow all these these thefts fornications blasphemies it all originates up here so if we're going to root this out if we're going to protect our speech it's going to start right here we got to protect our minds you can't just go through life grit your teeth saying i'm not going to say these words you've got to change your heart Your heart has got to be in compliance with God's word. You've got to have a pure heart. I love what Proverbs 423 says. Turn over there. Proverbs the fourth chapter in the twenty-third verse. Proverbs chapter four, verse twenty-three. Proverbs four twenty-three. The Bible says this keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. Keep your heart. Protect your heart. Because out of it springs the issues of life. How you live, how you walk, how you talk is all a matter of the condition of your heart, spiritually speaking. If your heart is bad, what's going to flow from that is bad conduct. If your heart is evil, what's going to flow from that is evil thoughts and evil speech. And so the Bible says, in light of that knowledge, in light of that appreciation of just how important one's heart is, you need to protect it. You need to guard it. You need to be careful what you see. You need to be careful what you read. You need to be careful what you hear. And I find that sometimes we can be a little complacent about these things. We can be a little lax about these things. We can say to ourselves, ah, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm in the Lord's church, you know, I'm saved, I'm not going doing any of this stuff, I can hear this stuff, I'm just, I just listen to the beat anyway, I don't pay attention to the words, and not realizing the power of words. Do you ever think about that? The power of words. Words mean something. Words can incite, words can depress, words can lift up, words can edify. In God's point, words created the universe. I mean, Words have always been important to God's creation. And so for us to say flippantly, words don't matter, we're going against a very fundamental truth that is taught in the Scriptures. They do matter. I remember being in Atlanta for a a summer. I had an internship down there, and I was staying with a Christian couple there. And I uh, I like music, and so I was listening to V103, an urban station, and uh, don't drink, don't consume alcohol, and I was taught right on that, and not something that appeals to me in the least bit. But I had been listening to V103, and they had had a commercial, radio commercial about alcohol, and specifically Budweiser, and I would heard that, and as they normally do, it had a catchy tune, it was pretty appealing, and I'm thinking, just not really paying attention, and I come up to the curb, shut off my car, and I'm walking up to the house of these Christians, as the one who does not drink, and find myself singing, nothing beats but nothing. Oh, wow, what did I just say? That quickly, that quickly, just listening to that and that catchy jingle, I'm seeing something that's anathema to me. Never get close to this. Never think about that. And yet, that's the power of media, the power that we so often cavalierly and naively deny. For those who say, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't make a difference, it doesn't have any impact. I ask people, okay, let's let's go with that for a second. So these corporations, right, who win, and it's going to happen pretty soon, the Super Bowl comes up, play millions of dollars for 15 to 30 seconds of time. And so these very smart people, who only care about one thing, the bottom line, making money, are just throwing money to the wind with all of these words and all these images, it makes no difference whatsoever, no impact on you, doesn't change your thinking, doesn't change your behavior whatsoever. Do you really believe that? (laughs) Folks, they've studied this stuff. And they know it has an impact. They know it makes a difference. Don't say, oh, it's just a catchy bee. It's just the words. Words matter. The words we read, the words we listen to, these things have an impact. So we've got to guard our hearts. Be protective. We were, I think we were talking to a couple of Christian couples uh, about this idea of uh, vetting your media. You know, there, there are sites, websites, that you can go to to find out about the content of, of books and, and movies. We ought to do that. A common sense media is one that I use. I'm sure there are others. So that you know. That, that, I tell you, there's no sense in us being surprised by what comes out in some of these movies. Uh, I remember back in the day, there was a movie that uh, Jacqueline and I saw, and we had to get up and leave. That was before Common Sense Media. But there's no sense in that happening today. I don't know if there's sense in it happening then. But you can know in advance. You can spring and make a, a decision. Is this appropriate for me to see? Is this appropriate for my children to see? Why? To keep the heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. See, this is the thing. The, the secret is protecting and guarding the heart. It's not, as so many people want to portray, just a list of commands, a checklist, I don't do this, I do this. No. We have to fundamentally transform ourselves. We have to be transformed individuals. Romans 12 2 says we have to be those who live by the Spirit. And that takes time. And that takes effort. And that takes being aware, like Job said in Job 31.1. He made a covenant with His eyes. Why well, should look upon a woman to lust after her? To, to make sure that you're careful about what you see. It, it's, it's rampant immorality. It's all around us. There are literally situations in, in a professional endeavor where I've had conversations with members of the opposite sex, and I'm having to either do this number or do this number because I can't look straight ahead because what my eyes are going to see. That's the world we live in. But we need to be aware of that and take protective measures. Don't pump that stuff into your head. Don't willingly and voluntarily expose yourself to that stuff. Christians need to be much more careful. I hear about what people watch and what people see, and some people seem to have this Teflon Christian mentality. I can see anything, I can watch anything, I can hear anything, and it won't have any effect on me. Boy, the devil's got you good. (laughs) That's just not taught in Scripture. What's taught is keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. We need to be in the heart-guarding business. And so when we talk, it will show how we speak, how we talk, how we engage. There are certain discussions we just don't need to be a part of. There are certain people at work that they have a a luncheon and they get together and there's a bunch of men and and they talk. And I heard somebody tell me offline that they don't invite me because they know I wouldn't appreciate some of the conversation that goes on. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I can eat lunch by myself. That's all right. I don't need to be a part of that. We need to watch that. Yeah, it's going to be different. We'll talk about that later. It's going to be different. You're going to stand out, but that's okay. That's what God calls you to be sanctified, to be His holy people, to be a special people, to proclaim His praises. And so we need to be concerned about protecting the heart. Look at Matthew uh, chapter 12. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 12, verse 34. Uh, I was right the first time. Matthew twelve thirty four. Sorry about that. I said Mark. Matthew twelve thirty-four. Matthew twelve thirty-four. Jesus says, Brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There it is. He's saying, It's impossible for you to speak good things. Why? Because your heart's bad. You can't have a bad heart and have good speech. <laughs> You want good speech? Don't focus on the speech and the things. Focus on the heart. You get the heart right, the speech follows. You see? So we've got to spend our time, as we said, just about every service, in prayer, in meditation, in studying God's Word, in teaching others. We stay on a spiritual plane so that our heart is good and then our speech reflects the things that we're doing, studying, praying, growing in Christ. How does your speech betray you? What does your speech say about your purity of heart? Let me give you a second point. What does your speech betray about your commitment to honesty? What does your speech betray about your commitment to honesty? We understand from the scriptures that Christians are to be honest people. We're not to be deceitful. We cannot tell lies. We're not supposed to tell lies. Ephesians 4:25. Turn over there. What does your speech betray about your commitment to honesty? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25. Therefore putting away lying Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And so, in order to live the Christian life, it says we have to put away lying. The Christian is not engaged in lying. And notice that there's no differentiation between big lies and little lies, white lies and serious lies. Put away all lying. Put away lying. No distinction. But I think it's interesting that he says, in terms of rationale, for we are members of one another. Think about lying. When you lie, what are you doing? Well, you're intentionally putting false information out there. And others in the vicinity of that false information are going to act upon it. They're going to hear it and they're going to make decisions, judgments, conclusions, may even take some actions based on information that you know is false. Now let me ask you this. Can you make a good decision based on bad information? Of course not decision is only as good as the, decision, uh, the information it's based on. And let me ask you this. Do you like to be lied to? Do you like to make judgments and conclusions and take action based on information that is deliberately and intentionally false and misleading? Of course not. It's all we need is Matthew seven twelve for that. Therefore, do unto others as you'd have them doing to you. So when we lie, we're putting false information. We're doing harm to others. We're making it in, them incapable of making good decisions because we're putting information out there that we know is not true. And they then will have to respond to that. So I tell people, for example, I'm doing some preaching here this morning, right? And afterwards, I know what's customary. Customary for you to say, oh, good sermon, good job, really enjoyed that. What if the sermon was really bad? And it may be. What if the sermon was really bad? And you tell me, good sermon, good job. You've given me false information. You know it's false. You know it wasn't a good sermon. You told me that. Now, taking that information, I'm going to go and inflict some unsuspecting congregation with that same bad sermon because of the information you gave me. You see, you've done me harm, and that congregation, tell the truth, even if it means it's a bad sermon. Now I know that we'll talk a little bit about that. There's a, another principle that we need to keep in mind, but the point is, don't put false information out there. What we sometimes we do it we call ourselves protecting people's feelings and protecting people from being hurt. It doesn't help somebody to give them false information. I mean, do what my mom said. If you've got nothing good to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> but don't ever put false information. And don't let your superiors, don't let your bosses put you in a situation of, tell them I'm not here. Well, how can I do that when you're right here? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to lie about it. If you want to do it, that's on you, but I'm not going to lie. Don't ever let somebody put you in a position where you're giving false information. We need to be truth tellers. We don't want to be deceitful. We want to be uh, the Israelite in whom there is no guile. That's the Christian standard. Look, Colossians 3, 8 through 11. Colossians 3, 8 through 11. What does your speech portray about your commitment to honesty? Colossians 3, 8 through 11. Colossians 3, 8 through 11. But now you yourselves are to put off all of these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. We just talked about that. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Why? Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, that Christ is all and in all. Do not lie to one another. Why? Because that's part of that old life. Remember we talked about earlier about being dead in our trespasses? He says that's part of that old life of being spiritually dead. We put that off. We put on Christ. We don't do that. We've repented. We've fundamentally transformed ourselves. We are not a people who lie. And let me tell you this, folks. When you lie, that reputation follows you. You probably know people who lie all the time. And as a result, what happens? Nobody takes what they say seriously. There was a guy that worked at our firm as a security guard, him to death, but he was always exaggerating things, always talking about things that you knew couldn't possibly have happened to him. And so you got to the point that anything he said, you completely discounted. Now what about us? Here we are, ambassadors of Christ, with the gospel message. But because we say so many things that are untrue, people write us off. You can't trust Him. You can't rely upon Him. What's happened to our effectiveness as an ambassador for Christ? We've just lost it. The most important thing we have to do, we've lost it because we've been lying. We need to be honest. We need to be true tellers. We need to be people that will say things as they truly are. Now, I said that there was a countervailing principle. Let me speak to the "tell it like it is, folks. There's always some at every time uh, people, you know who they are. You're one of them. You know who you are. The guys that just take great pride. Yeah, I don't engage in all that stuff. I just tell people exactly what I think about them, exactly what's on my mind. You know exactly where you stand with me. Well, absolutely we need to tell the truth. No question about that. We've established that. But so let me give you this biblical principle for the tell like it is, folks. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. Proverbs 29, verse 11. The Bible says this, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. So, folks, there are some times when we don't have to volunteer our opinions about things. The Bible says it's the fool who whatever comes across his mind comes out of his mouth. And the Bible says, in contrast to that, the wise man holds some things back. And we're not talking about being deceitful. We're not talking about lying. We're not talking about telling half-truths. But we're saying, you know, you don't have to say everything that crosses your mind. <laughs> if you have an opinion, oh, that dress is horrid. That's terrible. I don't have to volunteer and tell you that. I can keep that to myself. I don't like that beard. I don't like that haircut. What is he thinking? I, that's a terrible call. We don't have to volunteer. We can keep those things to ourselves. Why? Because we want to say things that promote peace want to say things that promote brotherly love, but brotherly love continues. Use some wisdom. What does he say? A wise man holds them back. And it does, you don't get past because I'm telling the truth. It doesn't say you tell everything that's on your mind as long as you truly believe it. That's not what we're talking about. We need to use some wisdom. It's the golden rule. Do you want people to point out some things to you even if they believe it's true? There's some things I'd rather not hear by myself. <laughs> Just don't tell me. If I'm going bald, don't tell me. My kids tell me all the time. They love it. They, they even, when they draw their pictures of me, they make a point to draw a bald spot in there. You, know, you can see it. They love that. Dad's bald. Look at it. I'm okay with that. But, but there's not, you know, we, you don't, we don't want every negative thing pointed out, right? I mean, if we're talking about things that jeopardize a person's soul, you have an obligation, yes. But if it doesn't matter, why do you feel the need to volunteer something you know is negative, you know is hurtful, you know it's going to hurt somebody's feelings? Why would you do that to your brothers and sisters in Christ or to anybody for that matter? The wise man holds it back. The fool vents all his feelings. What does your speech third point? What does your speech betray about your control over your emotions? What does your speech betray about your control over your emotions? Have you ever met some folks that are just emotionally volatile? I mean, they're just like a ticking time bomb, and you just when you're around, them, it's like you're tiptoeing, going through a minefield. Trying to get through here and because you know the least little thing you say, bam, they're going to explode and blow up. That should not be us. That should not be us. Look at James chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. What does your speech betray about your control over your emotions? James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. James the first chapter, 19 through 20. The Bible says this. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Slow to speak. Listen to this. Slow to wrath. Why? Verse 20, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We need to be careful about the wrath of man. He says, The wrath of man, nothing good comes out of that. These emotional outbursts, these violent reactions, this anger that has no place in a Christian's life. Why? It doesn't produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't advance the kingdom. It doesn't advance what God is trying to do. And again, remember, underlying all of this, what are we fundamentally? We're ambassadors for Christ. We have the message of the good news. That is our highest and best use, is to share the gospel with others. We would not want to do anything that would impede the effectiveness of our teaching on behalf of Christ. You know, there's some some times in my life where I've forgotten this, to be honest with you. I remember several years ago when I was considered a younger attorney, there was a group of us that were working on a case, some of whom were in my firm, some were in another firm. And there was this older guy that, I don't know, for whatever reason, he just liked picking on me. And uh, it's kind of funny in the legal profession. Everybody, I said earlier, worships at the altar of youth. Everybody wants to be young and look young and be perceived young. Well, my profession is the exact opposite. As one guy told me, nobody takes you seriously until you're at least 40. And in our our profession, they like to see two things, gray hair or no hair. Why? Because it it says that you're experienced. You've been around. You've done some things. You've got knowledge. You've got good judgment. And so this older guy was picking on me because I'm younger. And he sent an email that I thought was offensive, and before I was even thinking about it, boom! Why did I do that? I do that? Because in this group of people on this email chain, I'm the only Christian on there. and here I am, an emotional outburst of wrath, saying things in an email—not profanity, but still things I shouldn't have said. And I started thinking about—you've forgotten what you're here for. You're not here to vindicate all young lawyers. You're not here to defend your ego. You're not here to put him in his place. You're here to demonstrate the character of Christ and to present the gospel to lost souls. And sometimes we get caught up in those kinds of things and forget that our influence as Christ Christ's ambassador is on the line. Be a controlled person. Have your emotions in check. I didn't say that we don't have emotions. I didn't say we don't get disturbed. I didn't say we don't get annoyed. But we need to keep them under control. And let me give you a secret here, especially on the road. (laughs) I bet you I could get some of you up here and we could have some stories to tell that might convict you in this area. Do you ever get irritated or annoyed by how other people drive? I already know the answer to that. And, And I'm no different. But even in that space, we have to control our emotions. Don't give, be given the emotional outburst. I remember one time when Jasmine was our only child, very, very young. Of course, she sat in the back, as you're supposed to, under the wall. And we were driving on the interstate, and there was an 18-wheeler that was in the middle lane. I'm in the left lane. And I don't know if he just didn't see me or like some. He just, I'm coming over, and I'm bigger than you, better get out of the way. But he started coming over, and I'm like, what's going on? So I had to pull off on the shoulder, and I am like, Come on man! And I just drove on about my business afterwards, very angry, very upset, and then a few minutes later, I hear back in the back seat, come on man! Oh wow. See how quickly they pick up on that stuff. You got to be controlled. you got to be careful because you got little eyes and little ears that are around you if you have kids or even other people. We just have to have look at Galatians chapter five verses nineteen through twenty one. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. What does your speech betray about your ability to control your emotions? We have to be a self-controlled people. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Listen to this. Now the works of the flesh, everything we're talking about here falls under this umbrella, the works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy. Listen to this. Outburst of wrath selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresy, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. of which I tell you beforehand, just as I've also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If I practice outbursts of wrath, I'm not making it that. I'm not going to inherit the kingdom. That's what he just said. So it's a serious matter that we need to show control. Yes, we get upset. Yes, we get irritated. Yes, we get annoyed. But we need to have control. And I wonder if we would get less upset, less annoyed, less bothered if we were focused on the most important things. And what we're worried about is winning souls. And we're not worried about enforcing our sense of how you ought to be and how things are and, and defending your pride and defending your children's feelings. What we're trying to do is to save lost souls and keep ourselves safe in the process. When you look at things through that lens, it's amazing. Things that used to really bother you don't really bother they're just not that important. They don't warrant that kind of... Addiction. Yeah, there's some things that people should not do and should get you upset righteously indignant when people don't do what God said they ought to do. But there are a lot of things that it really is just a selfish thing. I just don't like that. That bothers me. And we've got to make sure that we're not that kind of people. We need to be self-controlled. last point in lesson will be yours. And this is a little bit different one. What does your speech betray about your understanding of the church? What does your speech betray about your understanding of the church? I think there have been a lot of problems in this area with uh, some of our brethren. And it will be something like this. In their vocabulary, they will say things like, uh, Church of Christ schools," Church of Christ preachers. Somebody says, I'm Baptist, what are you? Church of Christ. Think about that for a second. Does that make sense? Does it make sense that uh, we talk about I'm Church of Christ? Of course you're not Church of Christ. You're a Christian. You've been baptized into the one church, the church belonging to Christ. You're a member of a congregation in this particular point, College View Church of Christ, maybe another one. But you're not Church of Christ. We treat it like a denominational label. And so what people hear is this, they hear you say, of all the denominations out there, I belong to the one and only and best denomination, the super denomination. All your denominations are inferior. Mine is superior. You should be a part of my denomination. That unwittingly, perhaps, we give that impression. Sometimes I wonder if brethren really understand what they're talking about. And I do question that. But whether we understand or not, our language is how people judge us. And there are some people that are hearing you say that we're a part of a super denomination. Now the question is, is that what the Scriptures teach? Acts chapter 2, start with verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This is on Pentecost. Peter has been preaching about Jesus from the Old Testament passages. And it makes an impact on some of the audience. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Verse 40. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And so you had these people who were pricked in their hearts about the preaching that Peter had done, that they had taken with lawless hands and crucified the very Son of God. They were so overcome with despair, they certainly believed they wouldn't have reacted this way if they did not. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter has an answer. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And so there's the answer. And they do that. They're baptized. And then there's this curious phrase in verse 41. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 souls were added to them. Were added. That's passive. Why didn't they just join? And who did the adding and to whom were they added? Or to what were they added? Look down at verse 47. Look down at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church... Daily, those who were being saved. Remember earlier we talked about 3,000 souls were added to them. We asked the question, added instead of joined. Who did the adding? To what were they added? 47 says the Lord did the adding. And to what were they added? The church. One church. And why didn't they join? Because you can't join that church. You do what the Lord said to do. You obey the gospel. And the Lord has the exclusive sovereign right to add you to his church. That's the church universal. When we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, let's say somebody wants to obey the gospel today. When they come out of that watery grave of baptism, they are not added to the College View Church of Christ. They are added to the Lord's church. Now there's different senses in which the word church is used. Now we're talking about the church church universal. But if you look at Romans 16, 16, turn over there. Romans 16, 16. Romans chapter 16, verse 16. Romans 16, 16 says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Whoa, 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 whoa. wait a minute, wait a minute. You said over in Acts two forty seven that when somebody obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord adds them to the church, singular, not plural. And yet here we read in Romans 16, 16, there is the churches, plural, of Christ. What gives? How do you explain that? Very easily. When one obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you hear, believe, confess, repent, and you're baptized, You're baptized into the one true church, the church universal. But you are in some place. You are somewhere. You are geographically located somewhere. And you now, once you have been added to the church by God, by virtue of your obedience to the gospel, you have to do the work of the Lord in that place. And that work requires a local congregation or a local church, a local assembly, And so Romans 16.16 is not talking about the church universal, but he's talking about local congregations, local churches, local collections of individuals, all of whom have been added to the one true church by virtue of them obeying the gospel, but then they have to do some work. Whether it be in Columbia, Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, Birmingham, Alabama, they have to do the work of the Lord in that place. And so they come together with other people who also have been added to the church, and they form a local congregation to do the work of the Lord there. And that particular church, the local churches, people can join. Let me illustrate that. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 29. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 29. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 29. This is after... Uh, The Apostle Paul, first known as Saul, has obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, remember, he had a terrible reputation because he literally was a spiritual terrorist. Literally persecuting the church, causing all kinds of havoc. And listen to this, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, listen to this, he tried to join the disciples. Remember that phrase. He tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. And so here you have Saul, who's obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, that's Acts twenty He's been added to the one true church. That's the church you can't join. You do what God requires, and the Lord adds you to that church. Now he's in Jerusalem, and he tries to join the disciples. Who are those? Other people who also have obeyed the gospel. They're in the Lord's One Church, but they're situated in Jerusalem. They have a local congregation in Jerusalem. He tries to join that church, just like you can try to join the College of Church of Christ, just like you can try to join the Oak Mountain Church of Christ in Birmingham, Alabama. You can try to join that one, but the problem was they knew of his reputation. They knew what he had done persecuting the church. They didn't believe he was genuine. This is all just a ruse. He's trying to come in here, going to round us up and throw us in prison or worse. And it took Barnabas to endorse him and say, no, he's the real thing. And then they allowed him. you notice it said he was with them going in and coming out. What does it mean? He was a member of that congregation. He worked with that group in that place. And so that's what we mean. When we say things like Church of Christ, the church belonging to Christ. You know, sometimes I'll visit congregations and they'll have the cards and you have to fill out what affiliation you are. I'll put something like the Lord's Church or the One True Church. And almost always the person who reads that will come up to me and try to figure out some more. And, you know, once they get to talking, okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. You're on the same page. But I do that on purpose because we get kind of sloppy with language and we have labels. And that's not a title. I hope we know that. It's not a title. It's a designation of ownership. The church belonging to Christ. That's why I switch it up. To make it clear, we're thinking through, this is the church that belongs to the Lord. This is no different. It's the one true church. But I don't always have to kick out Church of Christ, Church of Christ. I'm not Church of Christ. I'm a Christian who belongs to the Lord's church by virtue of the fact that I obey the gospel. And I worship and I'm a member of the Old Mountain Church of Christ. But I don't want to make it a denomination. And I don't want anybody to mistake what I'm saying. And folks, when people say that, it's a great teaching opportunity. Take the time. I know that we just want to move on and go about our business. I'm Church of Christ. Bam, move. Let's go. No, take the time if people will give it to you. Now, I know sometimes there's so much prejudice against the church, people don't want to hear it. Oh, yeah, we know what you believe. The only one going to heaven. Okay, do what you can with that. But every now and then you'll run across somebody who truly doesn't know or hasn't heard. Take that as an opportunity. I remember on campus, one of my good friends, best friend at the time, he was uh, in a denomination, he was dating a Christian. And one day he came in furious, just as angry as he could be. I'm like, what's wrong? He said, she goes to this church and she believes that and she believes that. And so as I listened to all that, I said, okay, let's, let's take the scriptures here. And this guy walked him through Acts and walked through a couple passages. At the end of all that, he was calmed down. He said, like, okay, that makes sense. What was the difference? She had been kicking out denominational titles and phrases for the church. And it sounded like this is the super denomination, the only denomination that's going to heaven. But when I explained it from a biblical perspective, he said, no, I understand that. Let's take the time to teach. That's a teaching opportunity. Don't just kick out something to move on. That's a ready-made opportunity to teach people. What does your speech portray about your understanding of the church? And we could talk about other things, but that's enough. Our time is gone. I do want us all to think, how does our speech betray us? What would people say about us? We lined up a bunch of your co-workers, family members, uh, people you go to school with. What would they say about how you talk? Are you honest? Are you a person that's devoted to moral purity? Are you a person that shuns profanity, shuns filthy jokes, are you a person that has his or her emotions under control? You don't have outbursts of wrath. Are you a person who understands the Lord's church? What a precious thing it is. And will take the time to carefully and skillfully present to people what the Lord's church is and what it is not. To undermine some of the mischaracterizations and caricatures of the church that people have. We bear the name of Christ. We have a precious message. And that message obligates us to take the time to explain to people. It was explained to us whether we mother, father co-worker, somebody explain the gospel to us. The very least we could do is do the same for someone else. If you're here and not a Christian, we want to encourage you to become one. Obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do that now. Don't wait. Don't put it off. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you've heard the gospel message, That message has prompted faith in your heart, saving faith. It compels you to do something. It compels you to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It compels you to repent of your former way of life. It compels you, yes, to be baptized. People want to separate faith and baptism. You can't do that. You have to have Colossians 2, 11 through 12, faith in the operation of God. God is working through baptism. He says that is how He cleanses us of our sins and adds us to His church. We just read about that. He added to the church daily those who were being saved. And once you come up out of that water, a new creature in Christ, you begin the most blessed, the most noble, the most fulfilling work that can be done on this side of the grave. That's the seeking to save that which is lost. And I can say all those things because that's what brought Jesus down from heaven. Whatever brought Jesus down from heaven is by definition the most important thing that can be done on this side of the grave. And he said in Luke 19, 10, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And we start that process of saving lost souls. As we talked about last night, as Paul told Timothy, be careful as you do that. Taking into yourself and into the doctrine. Don't lose your soul in the process of trying to save others. You live by the principles that you teach and you share with others. If you are subject to the invitation, in other words, if you want salvation on Jesus' terms that he offers, we ask you to come forward as we stand, as we sing.